This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. I'll give you a quick story. When I first started G3 Project and I got a chance to meet with the leader of evangelical org that I had known from working on another project. We were on a call. He said, Lisa, what you're trying to do is great, but he said, you're going to have three issues. He said, your biggest hurdles and your biggest problems to fundraising or raising money is you're black, you're a woman, and you're young. Mm. And he wasn't even trying to be rude. He was just talking about the landscape. And Mm. so he was like, you have everything working against you your gender, Mm. your race, and your age. And so it's going to be an uphill battle. It it almost will be impossible. Mm. So all of those things have been challenges, but they've also opened up unique opportunities. This is Where You're From, a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us as we ask another Christian thought leader where you're from and discover how their life experiences and expertise, even if we may disagree with something they say, offer us an important perspective that's worth thinking about. Welcome to Where You're From. I'm Rasul Berry. What do you do when someone questions your deepest beliefs? How do you respond? What does it feel like to hear someone challenge core ideas that you not only believe are true, but you've built your life upon? For many of us, these doubts can cause us to question who we are and maybe make us wonder if we've even wasted our life believing a lie. Well, my guest today, Lisa Fields, found herself in a similar experience. And in just a moment, we will hear her describe how this season of doubt played tricks with her mind and forced her to reevaluate what she believed. Eventually, this journey even led her to a new career that would not just be difficult, but almost impossible for a young black woman. But that's getting ahead of the story. Before we jump into the show, just a note about Lisa Fields. She's the founder of the Jude 3 Project, an organization that exists to help the Christian community and specifically those of African descent know what they believe and why they believe it. She has degrees from North Florida and Liberty Universities, and she is one of the world's most sought-after Christian apologists. It's such an honor to have her on the show today. Here's Lisa Fields on Where You're From. I'm a PK, pastor's kid, so I've uh, been in the church all my life. It's funny because when I when I wanted to go to college, I was like, I know what I'm going to do when I graduate. I'm going to be a stockbroker, move to New York City, and then I'm going to join a mega church so I can leave church right after it's over because I never got to do that growing up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, the aspirations. You had it all planned out. Like, yo, I'm going to just be able to leave right after. That was the goal. Yeah, that was the goal. <laughs> What's it like? Tell us a little bit because you said that was off the gate PK. You know, what is it like being a pastor's kid? It's not like bad, um, right. but it's just like, Church, I think, is all-consuming. So mm. members come into the house. Mm-hmm. So you never... It's like church <laughs> and home kind of merged together in, okay. in a sense. I felt like it was normal childhood outside of that portion of it. Gotcha. Now, oftentimes that dynamic of a PK, like you, you it's not just people coming over. It's you get to see 
the man of God, right? The first lady, mm -hmm. when they get out of the public eye into private. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about your relationship with your parents. Uh, it's pretty good. They're pretty much the same people at church as they are home, which is good. Yeah, I think that, that helps, helps my, <laughs> my relationship with Christ, not right. to be crazy. And so there's no resentment there. They're very committed to the local church. Mm. And I very much aspire to have the level of care that they have for people. Mm. Like an example of that recently, I called my mom and she was crying and there was a member in the church whose son had died wow. and she was crying as if it was like one of my brothers. Mm. And so that level of care, it inspires me and it gives me like something to aim towards because I mean, a lot of people are great orators, but mm. there's a difference between someone who's able to speak and preach and then someone who's able to care for their flock. Got it. Now, I, I got to tell you, just full disclosure, I did do my research. I did do some homework about you. So I have some intel. So I heard from a little birdie that you had some interesting aspirations. One could even say some hoop dreams. <laughs> <laughs> could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so when I was younger, I was obsessed with basketball. Okay. And my parents bought me like a Fisher Price basketball goal okay and I used to play on it like all the time in the front yard uh -huh. and I thought I was so amazing back then there was no WNBA but I was like if somebody sees me they're gonna put me in the NBA <laughs> they're gonna see you on that Fisher Price hoop in the in the yard like yo we gotta I sign I was that girl so good until I went to tryouts in seventh grade and I realized like playing by yourself you think you're amazing but when you start playing with other people you realize maybe I'm not as good as I Thought I was. Right. I was good enough to make second string, but I was like, okay. oh, okay, not NBA. <laughs> that is classic. And just to give the people a picture, right? So how tall are you? <laughs> I'm 5'1", five, 5'2", five, depending on what day it is. Uh, there it is. There it is. But you were like, yo, I'm going to make the league anyway. But I think that does say a lot about the hope and the belief that you have in yourself. That, that says a lot. I think that's pretty cool. Okay, so you're in church, high school. Was it comfortable being in high school? And was that a, a challenge for you to have that kind of a image or reputation at a time? I was more so always been an introvert and quiet. Okay. And I would make friends in classes and invite them to church. So it didn't bother me because I've always been, like I said, introverted. If I wasn't the most popular, as long as I had a group of people that I could talk to, I was okay. Got it. Got it. Tell us about that transition from high school to college. You know, what was that like? Where'd you go? And what was your college experience like? So I stayed in Jacksonville for college to go to University of North Florida. I stayed on campus so I could pretend like I was getting a college experience. It was like 30 minutes from my house. So I could still have a college experience and do laundry on the weekends. <laughs> <laughs> and so in college, I felt like I went deeper in my faith, mm. like critically thinking about why I believe what I believe and not just accepting it because it was the faith that I was taught. And that came actually from Christian hip hop, mm. listening to Flame CD. Rewind. Mm -hmm. Yes. And in Rewind, he started using that. terms that I had never heard before. Exegesis. Yeah. <laughs> that was intriguing to me. And so I was like, well, I'm going to take a New Testament course, thinking it would be like Sunday school. And so I was like, this will be an easy A. I'll get to learn some new terms. And so my professor said the first day of class, I'm going to change everything you thought you knew about Jesus. I realized it wasn't going to be Sunday school. And uh, I really struggled mm. during that time. 
with my faith and I didn't know what to believe because I was like, I've never thought like about where the Bible came from. I think the most I thought critically about my faith was like when I was like five and I was in church and they took up offering and they were like, gonna give an offering to God and I was wondering how they were gonna give him the money. <laughs> That's probably the most critical thing. Right, like, yo, are they gonna Venmo him? Like, how does this work? I was like, is it gonna be a sacrifice? Because I remember wow. hearing stories about sacrifices yeah. in Sunday school. So I was like, is that gonna be like a sacrifice with fire in the back where he comes and gets the money? <laughs> like, yeah. Okay, so do you remember like the toughest day? Like, was the toughest day that first day or another moment where you heard something or read something that really kind of shook you? I can't pinpoint a toughest day, but it was just kind of rethinking everything I believed. Hmm. And you start thinking about it and start playing tricks on your mind. And then it sits with you. And then because faith is at the core of who I am and it was what I had grown up with, if I take that away, who am I? Hmm. Right. And so it's the core of your identity. Like that's how your identity is formed and shaped. You're made in the image of God. Your purpose comes from God and, you know, all of that. And so if you strip that away, then your identity at the core is shaken. Mm. And so that for me was the biggest thing. Who am I? What do I believe? Has all this stuff been a lie? Have I devoted my life to certain disciplines for no reason? Mm. You know, you start just rethinking all of those things. Right. And that was really a struggle. So when you started to struggle with those things, did you talk to your parents about that? Or were you too, like, maybe intimidated to have that combo? Yeah, I talked to them about it. And that's when my dad introduced me to apologetics. Okay. Ah. And that's kind of where my inroads to apologetics started. Wow. I didn't even know what apologetics was when I got to school. Okay. And I was still bent on being a stockbroker. <laughs> As I was exploring it, it was like, really, I was just exploring it because I wanted to find something to help me stay in the faith or be right. able to trust the scriptures. Right. And as I dive deeper into it, it helped me navigate and helped me push back on my professors. It gave me the tools I needed and it gave me other resources. Because mm. when you hear like somebody say, well, scholars think, you think, okay, all scholars think. Right. But then when you hear about people like Daniel Wallace, yes. then you get a different perspective. There's a whole group of scholars that say something differently. And so it kind of helped me to see like there's a wide range of thought on these ideas. But there was also a defining moment for me. I was in my room and I was just struggling. And I was like, God, I don't know what to believe. And I was crying and I played Bible lottery. You know, Bible lottery is when you open the Bible and hoping to land on something good. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it lands on Zephaniah and you're like, oh, this really has nothing to (laughs) do with my situation. (laughs) But this time it landed on the passage um, where Jesus looked at Peter and said, will you also go? And Peter said, how can I go? You have the words of eternal life. And that hit me like a ton of bricks Mm. because it was at that moment that I made a decision like, where can I go? Mm. This is what has been my foundation. This has kept me. And I don't have all the answers, but I'm going to commit my life to finding them and helping others find them. Wow. Okay. So you, you have this renewed awakening. How does that shape the rest of your collegiate experience? So I feel like a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. And so I continue to test it and put it under scrutiny because I believe that if it was truth, it will always be found to be true. Mm. I got in a lot of uh, back and forth with professors. Really? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because I think from once I had that experience 
And I started to get more in my faith. I had a level of confidence mm. that I always tell young people when they're in college. And never let your professors intimidate you. Mm. Just because they have a PhD doesn't mean they know more than you about your faith. Wow. And I think that confidence came just from me spending time in the Word of God, spending time studying that, okay, you can say what you want, but there's also counter evidence to this narrative. And you're not going to sit here and let us think that your perspective is the only perspective. And I'm sure they love that, to hear that from their student uh, <laughs> challenging them. No, not really. Not so much. <laughs> Do you remember a particular exchange that kind of got interesting? Yeah. So me and my professor were going back and forth. And then he just goes from reason to emotion. And he says, why did God let my daughter be born with Down syndrome? Whoa. At that moment, that really also taught me something about why people have their doubts fortified. Is because God allowed something that is very difficult for them to process. Mm. And so at the core of his reasoning, he was upset with God mm. for his daughter's condition. Mm. That's a moment right there. Like you having a discussion, a debate, and then all of a sudden he takes it there, like all the mm. emotion. Man, and like you said, sometimes mm. the issue that we're talking about is not the actual issue that is happening. Now, and I got to ask you this too. Mm -hmm. Were there temptations? Were you struggling with just the other aspects of campus life? Or was it just like this sense of like, yo, I'm just growing in my faith and that's what I'm about right now. Yeah, I mean, I had a bit of a radical campus college experience. <laughs> when I was in college, that experience with God radically mm. shifted the trajectory of my life and I became very zealous and radical. Like, okay. I'm talking about listening to sermons all the time, listening to Christian hip hop all the time. My Saturdays, I would spend from noon to about three, mm. I would get a group of friends and we would go to the worst neighborhoods in the city wow. and knock on doors and share the gospel with people. Okay, yes. And then at night from 11 p.m. to two in the morning, I would go to a club parking lot with my friends and share the gospel with people. Wow. So I was just, I had a very radical approach mm. and I just wanted people to hear the gospel message and I believed that we had to go where people were. Wow. We couldn't wait for them to come where we were. So you were going to the club on Saturday night. It just was yeah. a different whole situation. So I would see people that I went to school with. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, how did your parents feel about this new zealous Lisa that they were seeing? Well, I think I, the club idea actually came from my dad. Okay. So my parents came to faith when they were teenagers. Okay. And my dad used to do that when he wow. was around that same age. So I heard stories of him doing that and that inspired me to do it. It was a fun time. It was a fun season of my life. A lot of zeal, not a lot of wisdom. <laughs> okay, let me double click on that. What does that mean? Like, what are some things you did with the zeal that you wish in hindsight with the wisdom you would have done different? I think just being over the top in the message, you know, like feeling like you have to meet a quota of sharing the gospel to a certain number of people like you're not invested in discipleship you're more investing mm. in just trying to get people to say a prayer and you're not thinking about like the long-term relationships mm. with people so people will respond sometimes like to the yeah message. so it was, it was so funny one guy was like man i can't escape this my mama been telling me i need to get my life right I just run into random people and now I'm at the club and you trying to pray for me. Wow. He was like, I can't escape this. 
<laughs> that was his sign. Okay, I give up, Lord. I'm yours. I wonder sometimes how fruitful that time was. <laughs> I think it did a lot in me, even if it didn't do a lot in other people. And you never know. One right. plants, one waters, God gives an increase. Exactly. You're going to see somebody in heaven like, yo, I saw you at the club. <laughs> <laughs> you prayed for me. And that, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that'll happen. That'll be a fun conversation. Okay, so you graduate decide to become a stockbroker at that point? I, no, I go into banking. The first job I got was as a banker for Bank of America. Okay. So I did that for a year. And then I continued to teach classes at my church for apologetics for my dad. And Now, was that something that had already existed or was that something that you started? No, just I started that because apologetics was a passion of mine and I wanted to use my gifts and what I had learned from classes. So my dad was like, well, why don't you teach the church apologetics? So I would have Thursday night classes where people could sign up and come and I would teach apologetics there Hmm. to help our church be better at defending the faith. And then one day after class... Uh, one of the church mothers came up to me. She was like, when are you going to go to seminary? And I was like, well, later um, in life. And then it's like God used her words to spark, like, this is the next step for you. I applied to Liberty and got in, quit my job without any plans, and moved to Lynchburg, Virginia, because I felt like that's what God wanted me to do. So, wow. So from Florida to Lynchburg, Virginia, Liberty University. Yes. And that name is already scary for black people. Lynchburg. Yes. Yeah. Was it scary for you? Did you pick up on the irony of that word? At Not till later. I think I was so pumped up on adrenaline about okay. like, I'm about to make this big move. I've never lived away from home. Right. And I'm about to move to Central Virginia. I've mm-hmm. never even visited there before I decided right. to go. So. Wow. Wow, what is that like? Because, I mean, that's a pretty big culture shift, right? Yeah, I was just like, what did I do? What did I just do? <laughs> like, <laughs> am I being led by the Lord? Uh, For real? Wow. I just remember crying, like, oh, snap. Like, I don't have any family here. I don't know anybody here. Wow. Yeah, what's, what was your first experiences like? So, uh, class, obviously, was it was different. Um, not many mm-hmm. black people there. And um, but it was crazy because when I went to orientation and there's a, a the co-founder of Liberty, Elmer Towns, um, he's a very interesting man. But when he prayed during the opening prayer and he was like, there are some people in this room that are God's going to use them to really change the world. And I, I begin to cry, feeling the sense of the spirit of God, like overwhelming me like you're supposed to be here Mm. and his words really connected uh with me that day and i remember feeling encouraged like i made the right decision um in that moment wow that's pretty intense now the other thing that's different is that now you're in official classroom settings at a university where they're teaching about religion and, and and religious studies but it's from a you know, ostensibly Christian perspective, what was that like? And, you know, was it all that you had hoped it would be in terms of being in the classroom and learning these things? It was still a, a very challenging thing because seminary, you're constantly putting your faith under scrutiny. It's a different kind of scrutiny than mm-hmm. the Bar Ehrman text, but you're still reading counter narratives mm-hmm. uh, to to what you thought, what you're raised in. 
And so that was challenging. One of the richest um, parts of seminary for me was office hours with my professors. Mm. We really went deep into questions I had. They talked me through a lot of stuff. I'm still friends with them today. They send me encouraging messages. Mm. Um, and so I think that to me was the most beneficial thing about my seminary experience is the after class experience and talking to my professors and really wrestling through um, the text and points with them and pushing back and then pushing back on me. Mm. That's great. Now, what was your experience like socially on campus? So socially, it was very interesting. I always say that the older white men, I would think they would be more ignorant, but they were actually more aware than the students. <laughs> and so I would get comments from students like, do you know your mm. dad? Like, wow. is your hair weave? Like stuff like mm. that. Um you know, one girl said she unfollowed me on Instagram because I talked too much about race. Mm. And so um, one guy, he was like the goal of my ministry, G3, because I was telling him I hadn't even started G3, but I was just, you know, just sharing with students. And he was like, your ministry concept is racist. Like, you just want to do apologetics to black people. He was like, if I did apologetics to white people, you would say that's racist. Why I can't say what you're doing is racist. Wow. <laughs> So, I mean, how did that feel like when you heard those things? I was just like, man, I, get me out of here. <laughs> and when we come back, Lisa Fields will share how trips from her Christian bubble in Lynchburg to friends and family in D.C. on the weekends helped her find reprieve from fellow students and also how those short trips laid the foundation for the organization she would later start. That's coming up on Where You're From. If you're enjoying Where You're From, would you take a moment to write a quick review and give us some stars? Podcast platforms like iTunes and Google promote highly rated shows. So a one-sentence review of what this episode or show means to you and a quick five-star rating will help these important stories reach more people. Thank you for your help and keep listening for more of Where You're From. This episode is brought to you by smallgroups.com. Find everything you need to build, grow, and maintain a healthy, thriving small group ministry. Smallgroups.com equips you to develop your ministry model and train your leaders, to nurture spiritual growth in group members, to troubleshoot typical group problems, and also to avoid common pitfalls. Whatever your role in developing life-changing community, we have resources for you. Visit smallgroups.com today. This is Daniel Ryan Day, and I'm a producer for Where You're From. And before we jump back into the rest of our conversation with Lisa Fields, here's a sneak peek at our next conversation with Ambassador Susan Johnson-Cook. I get a call at 10 o'clock at night on my police phone. It's like the bat phone, and I have just laid down. I'm emotionally and physically exhausted. And then the police headquarters calls me and says, Chaplain, we need all of the chaplains to report. There were 26 police officers missing in action. We've identified all of their families, and they're going to all be here at headquarters. So the sooner you get here, the better. And now back to our episode with Lisa Fields here on Where You're From. So because my classmates, and they weren't bad people, but I think they would just say ignorant things at times. Um, I spend a lot of time 
going to D.C. on the weekends. So it was okay. a three-hour drive. Yes. Uh, I have a lot of friends in D.C. D.C. culture is very black, bougie. It, it fits me to the T. And brunch. I love brunch. <laughs> and so I would go and meet my friends in D.C. for brunch. And my aunt and uncle lived there right outside of, of D.C. And I would go stay with them. And they would pay for my gas. Wow. <laughs> uh, so I could come up for the weekends. So I would spend most weekends in D.C. as a way to escape. So my experience with my professors, I cherish and love. And I, my relationship with the students, I mean, we were cool. But, I mean, some of the comments were a bit unsettling. Yeah. You know, so, all right, you, you have these, like, reprieves where you are in D.C., and I mean, how do you describe why that was so important for you to travel three hours? Like, what were you experiencing in D.C. other than the great cuisine and, and whatnot that you needed to fill your tank with? Church. I went to Black Baptist Church when I was there. Okay. So it was a balance for me of all these different experiences. Mm. And also, uh, in addition to that, I just my friends and them. I have friends on the Hill, friends that are attorneys friends that, you know, are scientists and sitting at brunch and hearing how their life is and hearing their work experience also helps me filter what I'm learning and how what I'm learning needs to be applicable to them if I want to make my education relevant. Because I think if I was just stuck in that right. seminary bubble and we're all talking about theological ideas, we're not really flushing it out with the rest of the world. Mm. And I think that's a real danger in that, to get stuck in that bubble and not be interacting with people who feel like they're more spiritual yeah. and don't really vibe with Christianity anymore to see, like, how do I reach them? And I think that was... As much as I was learning in class, I think what was equally important was that interaction with people mm. that weren't mm. in that Christian bubble. And that's something of a theme that I, I see in your life. You know, obviously your relationship with your parents, which helped shape you, your relationship with your professors, and then, you know, these friendships over brunch. When people think of apologetics, they don't normally think of friendships, you know, mm -hmm. as a key part. But you clearly do. What's important about relationships and friendships as it relates to understanding our faith and even being able to share it? Relationship shows you what's going on in people's life and people's world. And it helps you not to have such a narrow view of concepts, I think, mm. because you're you're like, OK, this is a great concept in in theory. How does this flush out in a person's everyday life? Mm -hmm. What is this person experiencing? I have one of my best friends and he has HIV and mm -hmm. he talked about getting getting HIV and contracting HIV and hearing his experience, hearing how he got into um, the lifestyle he was in. It it helps you be able to speak to some of the issues differently and with a level of empathy because you actually know people in these situations mm. and you're not making these rigid kind of statements that aren't considerate of other people's experience. Mm. I lived in a bubble growing up, a Christian bubble, like mm. in the church bubble. And so I being aware of that, I feel like relationships are my key to understanding other people's experiences that were not in that bubble. I feel like if I'm not doing that, I'm not able to effectively minister to everybody else. And I think mm. the greatest discipline that apologists need to have is listening. You can't be mm. a great apologist if you're not a great listener. Mm -hmm. 
Like I once sat down with a guy who was about to leave the faith for four hours before he got to his real issue. When we started, it was about God and hell. When it ended, it was about something totally different. And had I not listened to him without countering everything he was saying, I would have never got to that issue. But that took four hours of listening to get there. And so I think the greatest discipline is to be a good listener. Mm. I know you talked about the idea and the concept of Jude 3 with your you know, peers. What is Jude 3 Project and why the name Jude 3? Jude 3 Project is a Christian apologetics organization that helps the Black community know what they believe and why. Uh, people always say, why did you choose the Jude 3 Project? And people think it's some super spiritual reason. Really, it's a very pragmatic reason. When I saw content, I started thinking of a boxing ring. And I was like, it would be cool if our website had a boxing ring backdrop. And that's why I went with Jude 3. It really had nothing to do with seeking the Lord or anything. It was just... <laughs> and looking back, the boxing ring was not good uh, because it doesn't need to have this fighting um, situation. <laughs> and by the time I had decided against that graphic, I had already named it that. So I was like, well, we're going to go with it anyway. So one of the things that's interesting when you say Jew 3 is if people are not oftentimes aware that there's only one chapter in Jude. So this is what Jude 3 says in the new King James Version. Uh, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. What is it about that verse that inspires you to do what you do? Contending earnestly for the faith. uh, uh, That's obviously one of my favorite parts. But I think the end of it is that the faith that was delivered Mm. to us, like this is the message that we know is true. This is a faithful message and we need to contend for it because it is the truth. Mm. Uh, we're not contending on falsehood. This is a faith that was been given to us that we can trust and that we need to help other people understand that they can trust in it as well. That's good. And you know, the other part that I never thought of that this verse reminds me of you is it starts with beloved, which is this term <laughs> of endearment, right? And mm-hmm. it, and there's this uh, intimacy, there's a relationship there that it models, which is, I think, is something that emotional intelligence that you talk about, but there's community there. And so it kind of reflects this value of community that you have to, it wasn't just delivered to one person, it's delivered Mm -hmm. to a group of people. And so that therefore we have a responsibility to share it. Yeah, that's good. Now, when I think of, you know, classic apologists from C.S. Lewis to... Josh McDowell. There's something that's a common thread among all of those people, right? Yeah. They're men. Mm -hmm. And so here you are at the intersection of race as a black person and gender as a woman. Do you see those two things compound the challenge of what it means to negotiate in different spaces? And uh, what do you think of that term, intersectionality? I'll give you a quick story. When I first started G3 Project and I got a chance to meet with the leader of evangelical org that I had known from working on another project, we were on a call. He said, Lisa, what you're trying to do is great, but he said, you're going to have three issues. 
he said your biggest hurdles and your biggest problems to fundraising or raising money is you're black, you're a woman, and you're young. Mm. And he wasn't even trying to be rude. He was just talking about the landscape. And so he was like, you have everything working against you, your gender, your race, and your age. And so it's going to be an uphill battle. It it almost will be impossible. Mm. So all of those things have been challenges, but they've also opened up unique opportunities. Okay. Why did you specify, you know, uh, specifically wanting to equip black Christians? What did you see was missing or that needed to be added to have that particular focus? And what does that look like practically for people who may know about apologetics, but don't know about necessarily black apologetics kind of break that down? Yeah. Cause I just saw like, there weren't any black apologists really that were known. Um, there were like every now and again, you will stumble across someone who, you know, did a lecture, but not on the main stage. Mm-hmm. And so I just felt like we needed to see ourselves in that space because there is a way in which people handle things that affect us that are not helpful mm. because classical and traditional apologetics goes a lot to proving the existence of God. Well, when you know the black context, you realize, hey, like most black people believe that a God exists or higher power exists. Um, black atheism is growing, but it's still a minority of black people. And so we have to figure out what black people are navigating, what are the challenges, what are the religions they're binding to and meet them there. But for many white apologists, the things that were happening in our community just wasn't on their radar. And so we needed something that would bridge that gap. Got it. And bridge that gap you have. I mean, this thing has a global impact, but that's just how you drew it up, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's how God drew it up. (laughs) So when you look at the current um, black context that you really, you know, um, focus on, what are some of those core concerns that you're seeing being asked those questions, both in the, you know, broad human just culture standpoint and particularly maybe in the Christian space? What are what are some of those issues that you tackle? I think some of the things that I see, I think, in the African-American experience is do I matter to God? Mm. Does my black life matter to, to Jesus? Does he care? Um, uh, I think another one is Christian and white man's religion. Um, and how can I be spiritually connected without buying into the harmful religion I felt like my parents were connected to. Mm. Mm. So that's where you see people going into African spirituality because they want something. They want to be connected to God, but not in the ways in which they felt were toxic. Mm. And so a lot of people have negative church experiences. They're trying to get away from those and they're using other means to say, I want to be connected to God, Mm. but not that way. Wow. And, And what have you found helpful in the way you approach it and respond to those issues? I think especially with people wanting to be connected to spirituality but not connected to Christianity, I find that listening to their stories is important Mm -hmm. to see what traumatic things happen to them in religious experiences. I did a tweet that went viral some time ago that said some parents are praying for their children to come to church, something like that, but they don't realize that they're their biggest obstacle to getting them Mm -hmm. back in the faith because of the ways they lived as they were holy in church, but nasty at home. Wow. And so I think 
in that regard, we have to listen to people who really have experiences where they experience the duplicity of their parents. And they're like, well, if you spent all this time at church and they never transformed you, why go? Mm. Got it. And so like, all right, so let's just double click on that. So let's say that's what somebody sees. They responded to the tweet, say, amen. Yes, you're right. How would you encourage that person? What would you say to say, yeah, but still Mm -hmm. Jesus is the way. Mm -hmm. At first I'll let them process their emotions um, and get out their frustration. And then we would move to how the person that offended them behavior was inconsistent with the scriptures. Okay. They have to untangle that in their mind. And so it's almost as if you're playing a therapist in a sense mm-hmm. to listen and help so they can untangle that. Mm-hmm. And I think as an apologist, in a sense, we have to almost double up as therapists sometimes when people have those traumas. Now, if you're not a therapist, don't lead people and give them bad information, mm-hmm. but listen enough to help them untangle that stuff because all the experiences get tangled up. Hmm. And trauma doesn't help you see reason clearly. And so when you untangle that for them, then you're able to then speak truth about the distinctions between the human behavior and the biblical responsibility. And then once you help them frame that, then I think it's important to talk about overcorrection. Because the tendency for people that have bad experiences to overcorrect, and when you overcorrect, you're still not corrected. Mm. And I think that's what many young people, they're trying to overcorrect. They're like, when I saw my parents go this way, it led down to destruction. But you don't realize that if you go the opposite way, it's still destruction. Your parents were on the right road. They just missed the turn. Mm. But you go the opposite direction and you still don't make the turn. Wow, that's good. Now, you know, you, you talk about getting to know people and, you know, empathizing with, you know, their struggle or their story. But... I mean, are you saying that we should water down what we believe or how we communicate the truth? Because, I mean, at the end of the day, truth is truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I agree. Truth is truth. And I don't think we should water down our message. I think relationally, though, it is easier for people to receive hard truths from people they are in relationship with versus strangers. And so it doesn't mean that I water down the message. It means that when I share the message, people trust me enough to believe that I'm not trying to do them harm with the message that I'm sharing. Mm. And it also sounds like trusting God enough that Mm -hmm. even though that might take more time, uh, that it's actually a more effective way. Like it's not all on me to just... Mm -hmm kind of shoot people up with with words but it's also on god to soften their heart and to prepare them to receive it so correct gotcha gotcha that's good now one thing that might be particularly puzzling to some is one of the first questions that you said is raised in the area of black apologetics is do i matter does my life matter to god Mm -hmm. why would that be a question that someone would have yeah because they haven't seen it historically matter in this country We were brought over here as slaves. We were stolen from our land, and we were treated as if our life didn't matter Mm. for the history of our people in this country. And then when they're seeing people get gunned down in the street that look like them, and there's no justice for them, they conclude that because my life doesn't matter to the majority culture, maybe my life doesn't matter to God. Because if it did, he wouldn't allow this to keep happening. Wow. 
That's heavy to think that the experience that people are having sociologically in society is impacting how they think theologically. Mm-hmm. And how do you respond to such a statement? I mean, let me guess, because I already heard. First, you're going to let them listen and process the actual <laughs> experience. I'm starting to get this. And then help them untangle that. And then, all right, help me finish. <laughs> help me get the rest of the way there. Then I think it's incredibly important to talk about justice throughout the scripture. Mm-hmm. And God's heart for justice, that he wants justice like mighty streams, like oceans to flow from Amos, mm-hmm. that he says it's not right to acquit the guilty in Proverbs. And that throughout scripture, you can't read scripture long without running into a God that will vindicate people mm-hmm. and that he cares. Even when we talk about slavery, slavery is in scripture in a way that I think often we miss two of the key characters in the Bible were slaves, Daniel and Joseph. Mm. Okay. And God favored them tremendously. And I think it's important that we think about how God has loved and cared for people on the margins, um, even when people, the majority, tried to oppress them. And um, so I think walking people through that, showing them that the uh, Bible characters aren't white, that, that just because the picture shows them white doesn't mean they're white. Now, they might not be as dark as us African-Americans, but they were people of color. And so I think that helps. And then pointing people to early African history, I think it's a key contributions of black people. And I think really um, at the key of all of that is really showing people God's heart for justice mm-hmm. throughout scripture. Amazing. Amazing. I can see why Jude 3 is is flourishing so much. Now, now let me just you know, kind of land a plane at this, like you have swam upstream in many ways your entire life, right? You know, just going in this field of apologetics where one mentor told you, you got three strikes against you, (laughs) Um, your age, your gender, and your uh, race. Why have you continued and what has brought you joy in the midst of doing this work? I think what brings me the most joy is pulling especially young people out of the fire. So Jude says pulling them out of the fire, um, even hating the the smoke or something. I'm forgetting that sin that stains their garment. I'm sure I'm misquoting that. But the point of that is pulling people out of the fire and seeing students saying, I was about to walk away from the faith, but running into Jude 3 helped reel me back in. Like, Mm. I just get that sense that I'm like running through pulling people out and that just brings me so much joy to hear that especially from college students Mm. and I think also my back up against the wall and having the odds against me brings me joy I always think like I'm in like this basketball game (laughs) there it is (laughs) it's like five seconds on the clock and I got all these defenders on me and I gotta shoot really quick uh when my back up against the wall and people tell me I can't do stuff I get that feeling and I'm like okay you say I can't do it all right let me show you I'll do it so (laughs) there I love it so we're back to the hoop dream that ain't never go away it just it just changed from a hoop dream to a Jew dream ah you see that (laughs) yeah I see what you did there (laughs) Well, that's so cool and amazing. So I know when you entered into these spaces, you didn't see anybody that looked like you doing it. Is that still the case? And what would you tell someone listening to this? They're listening to your story and they're also, you know, a young woman, maybe a woman of color. Like, what would you tell them as a result of things that you learned about this interest in equipping people and helping 
to defend their faith. Yeah. Thankfully, I see a ton of people that look like me now doing it, encouraged to do it. Like, I saw you doing it. Now I know I can do it. That mm-hmm. is encouraging to me. I would tell any young woman listening, don't let people tell you you can't. And whatever you do, do it excellently. And they may ignore you first, but over time, you're going to do it so well that they can't ignore you. That was Lisa Fields on Where You're From. I'm Rasul Berry. And if you'd like more information about Lisa, check out the show notes, which are located in the podcast description. The show notes not only contain the talking points of today's show, but they also include a link to Lisa's organization, The Jew 3 Project, as well as a link to a free download titled Celebrate Hope, a 28-day collection of devotional reflections from the Voices Collection of Our Daily Bread Ministries. This digital download offers an invitation to look back at God's faithfulness to the black church in the past and carry on with the legacy of faith God has for us today. To get this free digital download, visit whereyou'refrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from, dot O-R-G. I'm Rasul Berry reminding you that it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Mary Jo Clark and Daniel Ryan Day and was engineered by Gabrielle Boward. I also want to give a quick shout to Matt and Londa for their help in supporting and promoting Where You're From. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries.